This is Roberta Fallon. I'm here at the Moore College radio station, TGMR, and I'm here today with Grimaldi Baez. Baez, I'm sorry. Um, thank you for being here, Grimaldi. Hello. Hi. Um, Grimaldi is an artist whose work I know initially uh, from printmaking. He's a massive printmaker. Uh, and most recently, I've seen a drawing machine of his. He makes drawing machines uh, from basically scavenged parts and throwaways and things. Um, and they don't really draw in the classical sense of drawing. They do things more like a pneumatic drill would do. They pound and make these kind of threatening, scary sounds. So I thought we would start out talking about drawing machines since they are in the art world. I think there have been others who have made drawing machines, and machines are certainly in the art world. There's Jean Tanguy Vie, however you pronounce his name. So tell me about your drawing machines. How did you step into making them? Was it a gradual transition from working with paper and printing? Well, I think uh, a lot of that came out of my time in graduate school and although I was in the printmaking department at Tyler um, I think I was pretty determined not to make any prints and uh, <laughs> and to really think about printmaking uh, in a different in a different way I think something that was really uh, informative in that respect was uh, Jose Roca's uh, curatorial statement for Philographica, in which he sort of opens with a bit of controversy, stating that he doesn't really like printmaking and he's about to curate this massive printmaking uh, extravaganza here in Philadelphia. Uh, you know, further into text, he goes on to uh, sort of lay out a distilled idea of, of printmaking, um, in which he describes printmaking as uh, a process that involves a um, a matrix, uh, a, a transference, and a registration of that transference. Um, and that really helped me to, I think, break out of the parameters of, of printmaking that were so, uh, I think, really, uh, that I had been practicing for so long and established as a routine for, for myself. So, uh, it really became about, I think, breaking through established parameters um, and starting to look for something uh, beyond what I knew. Um, and so what mm -hmm. kind of prints did you make, for example? Uh, woodcuts, I mean, typical stuff, uh, silk screens, um, uh, mixed media things, lots of drawings, intaglio, etchings. Uh, I was very fortunate to have, I think, a, a a wonderful education and, and, and great teachers and Nona Hershey and Fred Liang at uh, <laughs> Massachusetts College of Art and uh, had some also some great um, fellow classmates who you know we really had this I think what I call a culture of culture of excellence I think everyone worked really hard and pushed one another and um, I developed, I think, a strong practice uh, coming out of my undergraduate 
uh, time. And uh, I subsequently <coughs> lived in, in Puerto Rico where uh, I also worked on printmaking and uh, met the esteemed professor um, Martin Garcia and uh, he, were, he, he worked on massive scale woodcuts primarily uh, that he would print by hand. So um, in Puerto Rico, I learned how to, how to print by hand, not out of necessity, um, but it, it was just a, a different uh, relationship to all of those materials and, and processes. There I met Jose Ortiz, who to this day is a great friend of mine and also a person who's really uh, has had a direct hand in, in, uh, in me being in Philadelphia and having gone to graduate school. Um, so. So, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Pardon me. What you're, <coughs> what you're describing <coughs> is very physical. So physical labor involved, which does seem to segue into making machines. Is that sort of what happened? Um, in a, yeah, in, in a way, I think that uh, the, say, physical labor became a, a part of understanding um, a further distillation of, of printmaking um, as a kind of labor process. Um, and to... I like to reduce things down to, to acronyms, and it's something that I call PEST, which I subsequently learned that is a common um, acronym in the corporate world. <laughs> so, uh, for essentially uh, production, economy, uh, the, the social components of, of all of that, and, and technology. Um, so it's a way of assessing work, um, and it seems that we all arrived at the same uh, at the same place well and what does pest mean for you um, what's your acronym so that is that is that is my acronym and it's very similar to like this kind of corporate thing but for me it's about looking um, at work and and understanding uh, my role within that matrix so let's take for example uh, a, a printmaking project where one invites a master printer, that master printer typically comes in, they have certain ideas, they may be hosted by a university and in that print shop, the print shop will provide materials and laborers and there's typically a hierarchy and uh, an order to things where the product ends up with a chop and that chop you know, determines a number of, of prints that are produced, you have uh, inherent scarcity built into that, drives up the value of that, product wherever it's going to be traded and whatever economy it's to be assessed and valued in and then uh, all of those you know re relationships how we relate to technology and and how we relate to one another are all contingent upon uh, you know how that product is made so let's take one piece of that let's just take that master printer and you remove that master title and, and you just get rid of that um, entire concept and you create some kind of collaborative uh, production that is non-hierarchical. Um, you know, how far can you remove the um, the artist as as producer uh, without leaving the square essentially, right? Because these four things make a square. You know, and 
Exactly, and you be and I was trying to become something else, and so what I became was kind of maintainer of an apparatus or maintainer of a system. So I made these machines out of common found materials. Uh, the search for those materials became very important um, in that they allowed me to leave my studio and transcend my terms as like an artist in my studio producing and disseminating <coughs> art and culture or whatever. So your studio became the street. This became the street and, and I could go out into, or my studio was just a vector point rather. Um, was just one vector in a broad constellation of destinations that resulted uh, in the construction of, of, of these machines. But now there's more kind of complicated points to, to relate and, and I'm not just like making trinkets to show in, a, you know, in another white box. Um, it, it's, it eventually led me into working with people in a very different way. Um, but it, in creating machines, uh, I was able to become maintainer of a system and to observe the parameters of that system and focus on uh, making a thing that makes a thing, essentially. So I want to say that the, the machines make a particular sound that mm -hmm. is a little like a pneumatic drill, like I said, and the product that they produce is rather minimal. Mm -hmm. I also saw on your website Everybody should go to your website, mm -hmm. and <coughs> that you do make drawings. Mm -hmm. They're very much not like anything that your drawing machine makes, obviously, um, although they could have been. They're very beautiful. They're very energetic. They, I'll give them that. Mm -hmm. But they have some lyrical, cartoony humor, narrative, funny, they're fireworks, so yeah. they're totally unlike what I would have expected your drawings to be like. Mm. So I want to say, did you come out of a cartoony, kind of humorous, quasi-social commentary background to do all of this? I, I d it's part of an aesthetic I call like old-timey progressive, and it sort of generally refers to, um, uh, you know, kind of. Looney Tunes, or you know, the time where ca where cartoons were were not um, not the sort of exclusive property of of marketing to children, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, were used to to kind of illustrate distilled points. You know, whether it was wartime propaganda or um, or, or or any other distillation of of, of kind of information. Yeah, it is fairy tales. Yeah, fairy tales. Yeah, fairy tales fairy tales or, you know, kind of um, the sort of, uh, you know, hobo alphabets, so-called hobo alphabets. And uh, I, I, don't know, I grew up in an industrial, small industrial town. And, you know, you'd, for fun, you'd go hang out by the railroad tracks and you could see the freight trains pass by and there would be these um, sort of chalk drawings that, mm -hmm. that had traveled all across the country, you know, um, kind of a Kilroy sort of aesthetic and, uh, and you know, some of these trains have come from across the Midwest and, and you know, they were just sort of these, like a message in a bottle, you know, passing through. But you could recognize these year after year, you could recognize the same, the same drawings. It was that they were almost like signatures and, 
Uh, Did you put your own signature on the cars? Or were yeah, some. Moving? Yeah, so no, no, the, no. They were they were stopped and and yeah, you know, uh, of course uh, you'd go and you'd add yours, you'd add yours to it. Uh, so what was your message? It would just be like a little drawing. I don't know, some little guy smoking a cigarette or something. It, mm-hmm. You know, just like whatever came up, and it's not. Um, you know, it's not a very heavy thing, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. But you made your it was mark. A conver- yeah, you make your mark, exactly. You make your contribution. And and you, it was doing art, in a way, right? A diff- it introduced you to the concept of art is not on a piece of paper on the wall. Exactly. In a gallery. Exactly. Like, it's, you know, I, I've always had trouble with, you know, these sort of commodifiable forms of, of art and that I just haven't had a lot of experience, like, with... You know, I'm not represented by a gallery. I don't have like that kind of, um, uh, you know, practice established. Um, but and I don't think you aspire to that, do you? Uh, you know, not necessarily. But I mean, it's always good to sell art, right? Otherwise, like you're making your money doing something else. You know, and and so shoveling gravel pays the bills. But you know, I'd rather be making drawings. <laughs> I see. <laughs> Let's then segue to you were we were talking earlier and you told me about these four basically full-time jobs that you're doing right now all on the front burner all very important community sort of based work that gobbles up tons of your time and energy and spirit so let's talk about that a little bit and how you're how you're doing all of this um you're an artist in residence at the School of the Future, which is a Philadelphia, is it charter or a public school? I believe it is a public school. Yeah. So you're doing that. That mm-hmm. seems very interesting. We'll hear more about that. You're at the Village of Arts and Humanities right now, where you did work previously um, in the Spaces program with Lon Ray, mm-hmm. who was from Nigeria, and uh, on the Material Memory Project which you were here talking to me about before. So this is your second appearance on this art blog radio. Um, So you're going to be in residence at the village soon doing a new project that's kind of a continuation of the project with Lon Ray, but different. You're putting your own um, mark on it, and we'll hear more about that. And you're teaching Introduction to Community Art at Tyler in Ponosorio, and I forget his name, the gentleman who Billy co- Billy Yalowitz. Uh, ya- uh, yep. yes, in that program. And you are consulting on a project for ASE, mm-hmm. so, which does housing in North Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. So... And also working on Philadelphia Assembled, which is a fifth. (laughs) There's the fifth. (laughs) I lose track. Yikes. So, So, yeah. With the Philly Youth Trust, which is being uh, developed out of the village in collaboration with um, Michael O'Brien and a a few other good folks over there. Wow. So where do you want to start? And then we're going to get into how do you take care of yourself when you're doing all of this. Um. So I, I I see all of these as, as really the same thing. They're they're uh, all of these places. Um, the village I think is is probably the you know the most important out of out of all of these because I've been there the longest. I've been there for a year, and 
and I think ties directly into this sort of quest out of the studio and trying to kind of transcend terms. And, and I sort of went to the village looking for trouble in a lot of ways in that I was looking for an environment where I could test out a lot of ideas um, that I had about uh, art and, and what art and community meant and, and was. Um, and, and what I perceive as, I think, uh, you know, an art that is tactical and adaptive and uh, engaged in crisis, you know, and I, and I don't think I need to go into depth to explain that, you know, we live in a, in a time of, of profound crisis. And in order to make art that responds to that, I felt I needed to immerse myself um, in a in an organization um, that had experience uh, working with artists, uh, working with um, projects of, of this nature, um, and had some relevance and touchstone um, in a community, you know. Because it's one thing, I think, to theorize about these things and understand it in a historical context. It's another thing to, um, uh, to work with people. You know, people are very complicated. Um, and, um, you know, where you work with people and how you work with people and, and what relevance are your ideas. I think uh, all of these are a matter of, of an intense discussion that, that needs to be facilitated and needs to be had that needs to be sought out and needs to be uh, pursued in a very honest and, and sincere way. There's, there's really no room for, um, you know, for going halfway on this. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, presenting oneself as in sincerely and honestly as possible um, creates a trust, you know, a bit of trust in, in the people that, that you're working with. Um, and I think that trust is, is the beginning of a, of a sacred responsibility, I, I would put it in those, in those terms. Um, I think that is something that is very sort of mysterious and, and important, um, and, and it's a matter of, of the heart. And um, it's, it's something that you know, I feel very passionate about, obviously, and very strongly about. Um, and, it, and it's not something that I can easily sort of replicate in any of these other spaces, like where I teach um, at, at, at Tyler, it's like, a, you know, there's no 10 steps to gaining the sacred trust of community. Like it's, <laughs> there's no, I'm sorry, there's no 10 point plan for that. So um, can you define art then for me? I, I would define art as, um, as a art thinking, um, as a form of um, thinking broadly and connecting seemingly um, seemingly distant and contrasting uh, ideas um, and, and really sort of squeezing them together and, and, and then assessing that, that it, whatever emerges from that. Uh, I would describe art as um, uh, ingenuity. I think people have uh, tremendous kind of creative power. All people have tremendous cr creativity. Uh, and and we see it, I think, when necessity presses people, you know, and it, and it doesn't need, need to be dramatic, right? It can, it can be very, um, very subtle, for example. Uh, I always think of, uh, say, a game of dominoes or, or a game of basketball, for, for that matter. You know, what do you need? You need, you know, you need somebody to play with. You need more or less two 
functioning bodies that can coordinate. Uh, you need a ball, and you need a place to put that ball and, and assess it within the context of the game. And so, you know, that can be a milk crate, that can be a bucket, that can be a fine, you know, shatterproof $10,000 basketball hoop, right? But they all essentially serve the same purpose. Now, if you don't have the $10,000 and sponsorship from, you know, 100 different uh, franchises, then, uh, you know, you might be pressed to deal with what you got. And what you got might be um, a milk crate, for example. Um, and there's something really interesting, I think, about uh, appropriating things that belong um, to to different typologies and different systems. You know, a milk crate is a is, is something that's really ubiquitous and, and uh, as important maybe as as the milk as the freight container or something for. Mm -hmm. But basically, <coughs> I think what you're talking about is the gestalt mm -hmm. being larger than any one piece of it. So that to bring that into the basketball realm, the game is much bigger than the milk crate or the ball. It's the people and the enjoyment or the fighting or whatever it is. It's the ephemeralness of it being there and intensely emotionally, physically there and then gone because it's done. And so art is that way too for you. Art is that way too, and I, and I learned something, I think, very tangible and concrete from the way that people appropriate objects like that. Like, I, I, look, I look for that, because this is what I'm, the way that I'm thinking about art in a way is sort of like karate. Like, you know, karate means empty hand, right? So it's sort of this, like, you know, this art in, in crisis. Like, what are the, what are the essential, um, you know, ingredients necessary uh, for for thinking, you know, for literacy, really, right? For understanding knowledge forms and leveraging what you know and what you have um, against what you want to know. Um, and and that's a lot of what is the kind of thinking that's going on into this, going into this project um, that I'm entering into out the village uh, that I'm calling System Zero. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? It you're working with a s the same group or yes. mostly the same group of young men that you were working with under the uh, material memory project with Ron Ray. That's correct. So in that previous project, we worked together and formed this collective. And um, with that collective, we, we weathered the tensions and difficulties and successes of that project and elected to stay together. Um, and continue to work. Um, it was some, I think it was you know, something very important and um, heartening for me, you know, that, that these young men wanted to continue to work on something. It also allows to work, for me to work beyond projectism, you know, that, that something uh, can be broken down into these little intervals and steps, but that we can continue uh, to develop this idea of this collective, develop these ideas of meaningful work and the right to determine what meaningful work is. Um, you know, in many in many ways, these I, I see these art projects as a bit of a, a Trojan horse. Sometimes, you know, sometimes when we can't, um, you know, when we have to, I think, talk about uh, aesthetics or, uh, you know, focus on, you know, 
making beautiful things, I'm way more interested in how we make those things. Really, how do we organize and how do we understand uh, the social labor involved in all of this? Rather than the product. Right, rather than the product. The product is important to me only insofar as it ratifies the process, you know. Um, and uh, it's just to be clear about that. And so from from that relationship with with those guys and and that last project, we elected to stay together and develop this this next uh, stage, which I'm calling System Zero. And so we have this house, uh, and it's a two-story row home, and uh, we're converting this home from a domicile to a workshop slash meeting house. And so the workshop has a workspace and three basic sets of technology. One is a uh, discarded encyclopedia of family craft. I think, it's, I think that's what it's called from like the 70s. <laughs> it's like mm. the family craft encyclopedia, something to that effect. And it's just like macrame and casting and all these kinds of um, how to do work, right? Uh, so there's this, uh, there's this library, uh, then um, a small printing press, and thirdly, uh, a, a set of hand tools, hammers, saws, these sorts of things, and a workspace. And you know, really that's about working with, that's primarily for working with the young men that I talked about for this collective to outline ways in which they want to use those tools to explore a set of, of questions, right? And they're looking at these questions of, um, you know, really survival, justice, questions of economy, uh, questions of determining meaningful work for themselves. Um, what age are these young men? 20, I would say 21 to 27, I believe, or 22 to 27. Um, and so they have real world questions yes. that they need answers to like tomorrow yes I mean this is how this project started it was like we were talking in, in, in conversation um, I asked them you know what was what was most important to them because if we were going to start a project I would like them to be collaborators which is a very specific thing this isn't one of these Kleenex words you know that you, you can just pull out of a box and don't worry, there's gonna be another one right after. This is real. We have to define what this means because this is about to be a cornerstone of a relationship. So for me, you know, the question of collaboration is extremely important. It means that people feel like they have ownership, part ownership of an idea, of the idea, um, that can people find it enriching, that it is relevant to you, um, and that you can translate that idea without any coaching from me. Um, and I think ideally that, that I can be rendered obsolete, that there can be a, tr a transference of power here in which you have enough knowledge about what we just did uh, to replicate this without me and translate it and, and replicate it with others. You know, we'll see, I think this is what happens in time. This is sort of my kind of uh, trajectory, what I imagine could, could happen in time. Does this need to have a house to take place? It, it, it does. I, I, I say that the house is kind of like a, a, a sort of like ballistics gel, if you will, um, in the sense that the, uh, it, it's a space where, where we can observe um, these kinds of collisions. Um, the house becomes a container 
um, the house is a familiar space. Um, it is something that comes with a lot of um, implied relationships and behaviors. Um, it will stay stable. It will stay stable, exactly. Um, and that and the, the house internally also has spaces that are associated with with economies, with very specific economies, the kitchen, you know, the um, the living room, uh, the bedroom, the bathroom, um, and you know, if we look at the house sort of in a distilled through a distilled lens, and this is why I call it System Zero, you know, it, my my hypothesis or what I what I sort of posed to these guys was like, you know, what if I told you that that we are connected, you know, that we are all connected to these systems, right? Uh, from which our lives as human beings is inextricable. Um, and, you know, you can sort of think about that and, and, um, and maybe deny it to some degree. You know, some people have made a career out of denying that we are all related and, and connected. Margaret Thatcher fa famously declared there is no such thing as society. There are only families, right? Um, but we are all connected uh, through something called society. And, you know, I, I would hold up the, uh, the example of you know, the commodification of toilet waste, for example. Like there is a pipe that is in your house and it takes dirty water out and it puts clean water in. And without that, there is, um, there is no civilization. There's disease and death. Exactly. So without, uh, say, something as simple as water purification, which we t totally take for granted and is largely invisible, um, you would, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be doing this. You can have more than a couple of people in the square in, within a... A, s a small area, and for goodness sakes, it's in the Bible. Like, there is, there are instructions for, you know, you dig a ditch outside of your tent. <laughs> it's pretty, you know... Basic. <laughs> it's pretty basic. Um, so from there, we start to build complexity, and, and we, we, we introduce technology, you know, and it's how we relate to tools, right? So it's this kind of... This, this sort of thinking that rather than see ourselves as immersed in these networks and in these... Um, kind of biological concepts of relationship. You know, people always say like, oh, this is a, an organism or an ecosystem. Um, part of the problem with that is that it, 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 it sort of implies that it's better and closer to nature. Um, and, and, and the consequence of it is that we don't see, perceive ourselves as separate from it and that it's harder to conceive of something as in your service if you are not separate from it, if you can't see it, if it's not a tool. Um, and so this idea of, of, of kind of tools and conviviality is something that was written about extensively by um, Ivan Illich, who's a, a, a sort of someone who I look to for uh, kind of guidance in, in, in these questions. Um, and who is he? Ivan Illich was a um, thinker, Catholic priest, um, philosopher, uh, and uh, he passed away in 2002 in Germany uh, where he was teaching. He's of Austrian descent. Um, he primarily worked with the Puerto Rican and Irish community in New York in the 1950s. He subsequently went and worked in, the, uh, in a Catholic university in Puerto Rico and eventually founded his own institution in Cuernavaca in Mexico. Um, and he published a, a several books, uh, one famous one called, uh, I think it was Deschooling Society, um, and he's primarily concerned with um, the consequences of, of industrial society, um, really 
uh, how are we transitioning into a post-industrial society? Um, and one of his ideas is this convivial society, right? So how are we building and constructing a convivial society? And, and he argues that a convivial society is not very productive. So it immediately comes into, um, into conflict with the existing paradigm, you know, which is that time is money, you know, which is more the better, right? All of these things that we are really starting to understand are quite problematic. Mm. So um, that's a whole lot to be going on in your life right now. And it sounds like you're highly engaged with all of it, all five of your full-time jobs. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> what happens when you need to decompress? How does one decompress from all the energy spent and worry, anxiety? I'm sure that all of these jobs have a certain amount of anxiety that they bring to bear. How, how do you deal with that? Do you go in and make your dra your drawing machines and pound, pound, pound? Uh, I actually, you know, I pursue very uh, specific strategies um, to take care of myself. I got to thank first and foremost uh, my partner Ashley Gardner who takes care of me. You know, that's uh, important. That's a huge, huge deal. And you know, my my friends and family who are very supportive of the work that I do. And without them, I think a lot of this wouldn't be possible. Uh, I frequently visit uh, Jenny over at um, Barefoot Doctor on Gerard. Uh, I go get acupuncture regularly. I'm a I firm believer, and I don't know that it's a matter of belief. It works well for me, and it, it keeps me healthy. It's something I rely on. Uh, and Exercise? Uh, exercise, I do yoga, I practice yoga. I have my own yoga routine um, daily. I eat well, I try to, it's, it's like, it's a lot. You know, I go, I go to sweat lodges. That sounds friends. like a whole lot. That's as many things as you have in your day jobs. And sensory deprivation i must i am a convert everybody get on your sensory deprivation <coughs> uh tanks go float somewhere it is very good for you that's a thing <laughs> Se sensory deprivation this is not like tanning beds it is not a tanning bed it is um it is a tank a little bit bigger than a tanning bed uh that is completely dark and silent um and it's insulated from sound uh filled with a saline solution that's 10 inches deep approximately and you just float in there and it allows your body to relax um, deeply your muscle tissues your spine to decompress your um, and your mind most importantly and if you can achieve 10 seconds of deep relaxation in that it's really rejuvenating and, and very powerful so I strongly recommend it for anyone who needs intense cleansing rituals like I do. <laughs> All right, you heard it first. Sensory <laughs> deprivation tanks, and there are these things in Philadelphia. Yes, there's one. Uh, there's one on Gerard, um, right on right on Gerard next to uh, kind of past Frankfurt. I forget the name. I think it's Philly Float. I'm not quite sure, but it's it's great. I went there for the first time the other day. <laughs> it's fantastic. So. Um, you were telling me a little earlier about someone named Jack Delano, who also is an influence on you. 
Um, he was part of the WPA mm -hmm. in the 40s or 50s, is that mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You want to tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about him? Because I'm interested in these people that are your influencers, because I think you've absorbed a lot of good stuff from them. Mm. Uh, so Jack Delano was a, a photographer, and, and he worked um, for the Farms, uh, farm Security Administration. Administration, yeah. Uh, and he photographed a lot of these kind of epic Dust Bowl era photographs. Um, is the aesthetic and and, and what he did. Um, but like a lot of these artists who worked in the WPA, um, he was ultimately. Um, it, I think frustrated with the mass bureaucracy of the WPA and ended up invite by invitation coming to Puerto Rico in the 1950s under invitation of uh, Luis Munoz Marin, who was the first governor of Puerto Rico. So there, along with a, a, a group of other people, he, he founds um, a, um, what's called, what eventually is, is called the uh, DIVEDCO, División de Educación a la Comunidad, and it was um, it started as a sort of parks and recreation department, and it, that's originally what it was called was like parks and recreation, and what they did was mount a, a um, use uh, graphics and and print making um, as a way to promote literacy, um, civic issues, um, and hygiene and um, sanitation issues. And, and all of these problems that, that were very pressing in mid-century Puerto Rico and rural uh, communities um, where there was extreme, extreme poverty, largely the, the ravages of, uh, of two consecutive um, uh, colonial regimes and relationships where uh, the economy of Puerto Rico was really at the whim of um, essentially the market, you know, cultural uh, sugar production um, and that was devastating for, for people, uh, but very uh, lucrative for a few absentee land owners. So Jack Delano eventually goes to lead the, the television um, and, uh, and, and sort of cinema and media um, and projects in Puerto Rico before he is called in front of um, the... Uh, was it called one of these like McCarthy committees, yeah. McCarthy <coughs> era House on American Activities. Activities Committee? Exactly, that's it. Um, and he's essentially banned from from television. He's accused of of, of being uh, a communist, and uh, yeah, it's one of those places I think that you can point to, you know, a kind of uh, fork in the road in terms of a, you know who's in charge of articulating culture. I mean, you can, you know, we we see we understand the consequences of that today, perhaps. Uh, but there are a lot of, uh, of these films that can be viewed uh, on YouTube or Vimeo. Um, there was one famous one called Los Peloteros, which is the baseball players. Um, there's one called Modesta, which literally means like modest or modesty. Um, and these are kind of these morality tales with this sort of social realism aesthetic um, that were made with like local actors. And, and a lot of these films circulated through at film uh, uh, biennials of, of the time, but very few of them are actually uh, sort of recognized within the canon of, of American filmmaking because of this relation, uh, colonial relation, relationship with Puerto Rico. You know, it's a, it becomes this kind of, I think, an effect of, of 
cultural hegemony, right? It's like this, this how culture is used to perpetuate the message of a status quo and a colonial territory is obviously not going to be considered. Um, but it, in, the 50, in the 60s and 70s, you had a lot of uh, the unaligned countries um, and, this, and the socialist bloc countries that actually did invite Puerto Rico uh, to participate and, and as a political um, effort, you know. Uh, and so you can go to Eastern Europe and see a lot of Puerto Rican printmake, printmaking and, uh, and cultural contributions. Mm, no kidding. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So would you say that you are optimistic? About? Well, um, <laughs> do you have a spirit of optimism within you? It seems to me that you do. You're working on all front burners in your day jobs, doing all this good for people, and that doesn't come out of a spirit of negativity. Um, maybe optimism is not the right word. Positivism, perhaps, is a better word. I am, you know, I, I, I mean, fundamentally, I'm just, um, I don't know what anybody else is, is here for, but I'm here to help, you know, and, and I, I really feel uh, a deep uh, commitment and, and social uh, responsibility uh, with my work um, because I see it primarily as work. It is it is an effort, and there is I think a value that's that's created there, and I want that uh, value to be shared um, and and to be in in the service of of what I call society. I mean, I think a lot of people might think that doesn't exist anymore, but I I do I do feel as an artist a responsibility to a greater collective, you know. Um, and that that's a reciprocal uh, kind of relationship. Um, I also gain a lot uh, from that. And, and, and these issues of uh, poverty and, uh, and issues of equity, I think, are, are extremely important. You know, I have a profound, deep, sustained hatred for poverty. Um, Poverty is slow death by design, not by chance, you know, or, or it's by design. And, not uh, by moral turpitude. No, no exactly. And, and because of that, I have a deep, deep hatred of it and, and its consequences. Um, and so uh, I, I make it my business, and, and I think that, that art can... Uh, contribute to the to these issues um, in part through this question of, of literacy and uh, in, in how do we uh, come to understand new knowledge forms how do we leverage them to our advantage make meaningful work out of them um, become aware of our circumstances and conditions and and uh, understand power you know because I think a lot of it is uh, a lot of it is about power which can which can be invisible the invisible boot on your back, uh, and yeah. That was well said, and I think we'll just end it on that beautiful way to end. Thank you so much, Grimaldi. Thank you for having me. <laughs>